Now we're going to read from God's Word, and this is one of the few places in our service where you can, you can be confident that what you're hearing from the pulpit is without any error. This is the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 5, 21 through verse 33. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you, each one of you, In particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Our text this morning talks about marriage. Last week we focused on the instructions to the wife in verses 21 through 24, and then this week we're going to look at the instructions to the husband, verses 25 through 33. And if you look at this passage If it looks like it's giving a disproportionate amount of space to the husband, that's because it does. And perhaps it's because in the time when Paul wrote this to the people to whom he wrote this, the instruction that he gave to the wife, it would not have raised any eyebrows. But the instruction that he gives here to the husband, Paul says something radical. In the days of Paul, society placed the wife in a support role for the husband. She would manage the estate. She would manage the household. She would bear the children. She was working to establish his place and his name in society. And so Paul could have said, when giving instruction to the husband, he could have said, husbands, manage your wives. Keep them supplied. Keep them in their place. Rule your wives. But as we noted last week, Paul flips the table over on their expectations. The text says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and laid down his life for her. So here's another way of saying what he's saying. He's saying to them, you think that wives live for the benefit of their husbands. Husbands, You, you live for the benefit of your wife. And so when he's saying this, 
It's radical. It's even subversive. The husband is the head. Paul doesn't mince that at all. The husband is the head, but he is the head who serves. He, the, the head is always, usually it's above. The head is above, on top. But this head, this head that Paul is, is advocating, this head stays on the bottom. He gives himself up for her. But why? why, why where's Paul coming from this? Why, why this counterintuitive, almost upside down order of things that he's presenting? Well, as we said last week, it's not because of any kind of inherent inferiority. Woman is not inherently inferior to man. And neither is man inherently inferior to woman. The basis for Paul's direction is not ontology. The basis is Christology, the teaching and the doctrine about Christ. The basis is Christology and ecclesiology and soteriology. It has everything. The reason he he sets out this kind of husband, it has everything to do with the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of salvation. And so we'll look at that. As As we look at our text, we see five things. Five things. First of all, Christ loves you. Christ loves you. Secondly, Christ gives himself for you. Christ gives himself for you. Thirdly, Christ cleanses you. Christ cleanses you. Fourthly, Christ cherishes you. And fifthly, Christ joined you. So this has everything to do with being a husband and everything to do with the kind of husband that you should have. Whether you're single, whether you're married, this is the kind of husband you should have, you should be looking for if you are looking for a husband. And this speaks to much more than only marriage. So it's not only talking about marriage. Let's start with this. Christ loves you. This is verse 25. Christ loves you. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, it's brief enough that you could miss this, but don't miss it. He says here, Christ loved the church. You know, it it would have been enough. It could have been enough for Paul to have written here, Christ saved the church. And he, he says something like that in other places. He could have just said, Christ protects the church. Or Christ listens, Christ hears the church. But here and in many other places, the Bible says, Christ loved the church. And so I've got two questions for you. And the first question, does Christ love you? You can answer, you could, you could perhaps you're, you're answering this now, but you're answering it just from your head. Maybe because you're schooled in theology and you're familiar with the scriptures and your head knows the answer to this question. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. And so there's the answer from your head. And particularly though, for those of you who believe, it also says this, doesn't it? It says that God loves you if you believe. He loves you with electing love. Romans 8, those whom he loved He predestined. So there's also that. But maybe you know that in your head. I'm asking, do you know this in your heart? That Jesus Christ loves you. Maybe you've placed, if you've placed your trust and your faith in him, and he's the only way that you are right with God on a day-to-day basis, on an eternal basis, that Jesus loves you. Do you know that? Do you know that in your heart? Because I ask this because the reality is for, for so many of us, in our lived 
experience, we just get tangled up. And we don't honestly think, in our hearts, we don't think that we're loved by Christ. One way that we get tangled up. We get tangled up by thinking that we get tangled up by thinking that we are loved, but it's because we deserve God's acceptance. We think this way, even if we would never say it out loud, especially in a, in a, in a, in a, in a reformed context. You know this is the wrong answer, but this is what the functional theology is. We think, because I do good, because I have done good and kept myself clean, because I've been really disciplined with the spiritual disciplines, because I've been really disciplined with my Bible reading or with my task list, I feel good about myself. And my self-righteousness today in this hour makes me feel secure with God. And that's the problem. You're secure because of your performance. You're not secure because of his love. Your place with God feels strong because at this moment your life is pulled together. You accomplished it. You, you check the boxes. And, and implicitly you feel that you deserve God's love. And that means that you don't truly understand it or know it. His love. Here's the test. How about the day when you miss Bible reading? Or how about the day when you miss the mark? You're behind on your work. Maybe you slacked off on the job and it's just it's clouding over you. Do you feel any less loved by Christ then? Independent of what you've accomplished? And so we get tangled up by thinking that we qualify for God's acceptance and love. But the other way that we get tangled up, the other way is we know, we know that we don't deserve God's acceptance. We know we don't deserve his love. We sense that we've disqualified ourselves with, with our stupid sin. And so we feel that, well, he couldn't love us. He couldn't love me and he doesn't love me. And, and maybe this is where you are today. Maybe this week. Your numbers at work or at school, maybe they were just off. Maybe they were lousy. Maybe it's because you slacked off. And and you've got this film of guilt and and shame. Or or maybe you you slipped, slipped badly. Maybe you sinned. Some big new sin. Or maybe it was that repeated old sin that tangles you up so frequently. And you know, you know that you deserve nothing but but distance and displeasure from God. And you don't think that you're loved by Jesus this morning. It's because your heart condemns you. We'll come back to God's words. Here, just, I'll just throw these out here. Six texts for you to consider about the love of God, the love of Christ. Ephesians 2.4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, This God says in places like Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people. For you were the least of all peoples. Deuteronomy 33, 3, yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. And then you come to places where it's just so clear. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation 
for our sins. And so I say to you this morning, you sad, sad soul, Jesus loves you. And so look up, cheer up. He hears you. He's calling you to himself. And if you can live, and if you can live even with your, your self-inflicted stains, and, and if you can live and believe that he loves you, you've seized on to the one thing that everyone in the world needs, to know, to know and to own your own sin and your own dirt, and at the same time to know that you're loved by the one whose love matters most of all. Do you know that Christ loves you? Now, whether, whether or not you're married, whether you're, you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're widowed, whatever your state, do you know that Christ loves you? And, and if the answer is, I'm not certain, or I just don't have a sense of it, what would it take to convince you? What would Jesus have to do to remove that, that doubt, that shadow in your mind? What could he do? Has he not done it? Now, let me, let me flip this around. Husband, does your wife know that you love her? Does she know it? Not in her head. Not because you said it. And, and have you said it? Have you said it today? Does she know in her heart that you love her? And what would you need to do to convince her? To convince not not convince her ears, but to convince her heart that you love her. Husband, do you love your wife? Because without love, headship turns into tyranny and abuse. So we see Christ loves you. Next we see this. Christ gives himself for you. Christ gives himself for you. Verse 25, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, what does it mean when we say that Jesus Christ gave himself for the church? Galatians 1.4, Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us. And so when it says he, Jesus, gave himself for our sins, that means that means. That means the ugly thing that you did this week, the ugly thing that you said earlier this week, and now you you regret it. Jesus took that ugly sin from you, and Jesus took that ugly sin, and he put it on himself. He took it for for you, and he took all the punishment for it, and he loves you in spite of the ugly sin, and he loves you in your ugly sin. That's what moved him to take it, and he takes away your hated sin. He suffered for your sin. And so for you, if you believe in this, if you believe in this seemingly impossible gift that has been given in Christ, it means you, you now live with this, this, un, this stamp on your life that you can't ever get off. You're living with this on your life. A man died to save my life. I was in the freezing river. He jumped in and he died saving me. It means you live with this kind of mark and memory on your life. It means I was caught on the horns of a bull and it was killing me and crushing me. But a man interposed and he set me free and he was trampled instead. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ 
lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so if you're a Christian, this is, this is a declaration to you that someone gave his life for you, and it's a call to you. This is a call for you to also give up your life. This is a call to put off sin. This is a call to you, if you're a Christian, to, to hurl your pride, to hurl your envy, your lust, your anger, and to hurl them as far away from you as you can, and to pursue instead, to pursue holiness and love. And the word says, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so if Christ gave himself for you, this is also what it means. Husband, will you give yourself for your wife, to your wife? Now, it may be that when You know, in those moments when you feel virtuous and you feel inspired, maybe you once told her, I would die for you. I would die for you. I will lay down my life for you. Maybe you told that to your wife. And that's good. You will lay down your life for her. You promised. But will you pick up your laundry? And and will you stop criticizing her? Would it kill you to stop pointing out all the problems you see in her? Would it kill you to stop that? Well, maybe you could lay down your life like that. Maybe. So, Christ loves you. Christ gives himself for you. And next, it says Christ cleanses you. This is verses 26 through 27. Look at verses 26 and 27. And, and especially, if you're someone who deals with self-loathing, if you wrestle with these times where you just despise yourself, You struggle with self-hatred, and your self-hatred is something that makes it very hard for you to believe that God adores you. Well, look look at verses 26 and 27. Christ loved you, gave himself for you so that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And so, do you, feel, do you feel dirty? Do you feel repulsive? Do you feel like trash? And maybe part of it is because people told you you were disgusting. People told you that you were trash. Jesus sees that. Jesus sees all of that. And he intends to cleanse you. He intends to wash you. He intends to sanctify you. And don't you see what this is saying? He's saying that Jesus already sees your dirt. And he chooses Cleansing, not rejection. He sees your dirt and he, he doesn't reject you. He embraces you and he's committed to making you holy. That's what it means to sanctify. He's going to make you holy. And so perhaps maybe you're the, you're the one in your family who's the problem child and you feel like that. You feel like you're the problem child, the outcast. You feel like you're the screw-up. Verse 27 continues, that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. It's saying here that Jesus recognizes everything that's wrong about you and he's removing every one of your blemishes. Think of it this way. What what do mirrors 
serve to do for us except for to show us our blemishes. And so when we, when we pass by a mirror and you look at yourself, what is it that you're looking for? In rapid succession, part of what you look for in the mirror is your blemishes. You're looking for all the blemishes that you know about. It could be a pimple. It could be this place on your hair that's just out of place always, or maybe some line on your face, line on your eye or on your nose that you're always trying to to hide or disfavor. Those are just the surface blemishes that we all know about and we can see. But we all have those other blemishes, the ones that are inside, the moral blemishes, whether it's your your acid tongue or or the greedy clutch that you have on your money or or, or your your stony and and bitter heart, your, your addiction, whatever it is. Jesus sees those blemishes. He knows them better than you do, and he commits himself to remove all of them. Not only is he removing your sins and your spots, though, it says he's doing all that, and not just to make you a blank slate. He's doing that, to, it says, to present her to himself a glorious church. And that word glory speaks of something that will cover the canvas with color. Not only is he removing your defects, he's replacing them. He is making you, if you're a believer, he's making you glorious. A source of radiant glory. Christ, it says, is making his bride to be dazzling, to be radiant. And it says he's going to look on you with pleasure at what you've become. And, and there are these times when maybe you've, you've been attending a wedding and you look at the couple. And sometimes, not always, sometimes when the man looks at his bride, you can, you can detect in his eyes something softens, something, something melts, and you realize she dazzles him. And, and to him, at this moment, she is the most beautiful lady in the whole world. And if you're a believer, Jesus is making you into such a sight in his eyes that he might present you to himself, a glorious church. He's talking about your sanctification. He's talking about your glorification. Christ, by the Holy Spirit, working in you an eternal weight of glory. And that means all of us, all of us who believe, will one day, we will be together in this glory. And, and on that day, we will hardly recognize one another for the brightness of what we've become, the brightness of what he's made us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so, women, this is the kind of husband that you want and that you should be looking for if you're looking for a husband. And husband, this is how you must treat your wife. Is your care and your love turning your wife into a radiant woman? Or, or are you wearing her down, wearing her out? Are you making her bright? What else do we see here? Well, next we see this. Christ cherishes you and nourishes you. Christ cherishes you and nourishes you. Verses 28 through 30. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. So what's he saying? He's saying, 
If, you're, if, you, if you've got normal, healthy thinking, thinking, you don't hate your flesh. You don't hate your own body. You don't hit yourself. You don't hurt yourself. No, we, we protect our bodies. We feed ourselves. We feed ourselves three times a day, every day. You, you, will, you will even drop your work, interrupt your work, and you'll fixate on finding food to feed yourself. Verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So you feed your body. You care for your body. You, you clean your wounds when you're hurt. You bandage your body when it's cut or torn. Verse 28, that is how a husband should treat his own wife. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so, at the bare minimum, he's saying here, you should be kind to your wife in the same way that you expect people to be kind to you. And and at a bare minimum, it's also saying, you should be patient and gentle with your wife in the same way that you want people to be patient and gentle with you. And if, if you don't, he says, husbands, when you hurt your wife, you're hurting yourself as well because you too are one. And he's saying, he's saying to husbands, you find it easy enough to feed and to nourish your own body. How about your wife? Are you nourishing your wife? Or are you neglecting your wife. Are you nourishing her or are you neglecting her? Let's say, let's say a husband is angry at his wife. And so in that situation, he decides he's just going to close up. He's going to close himself up to her and he won't engage with her. They're, they're having dinner together, but he's silent. And, and perhaps the husband might say, well, by being silent, by, by withdrawing, at least I'm not harming her. I can't possibly be harming her because I'm not talking to her. I haven't spoken to her all dinner. I haven't spoken to her in a week. Well, nourishing is active. Nourishing, which is commanded here, nourishing is active. It requires effort. Neglect. Neglect is the absence of nourishment. If you withhold nourishment, if you withhold from her words of encouragement, if you withhold physical affection, if you withhold hugs, embraces, then you're neglecting her. You're starving her. You're not nourishing her. And when you neglect your wife, it says here that you're neglecting your own body as well, for the two of you are one. And so neglect in a marriage relationship, that's a form of self-harm. And look at how Jesus nourishes his own people. Verse 29, 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And so what it's saying is, Jesus, if you're a believer and you're part of his body, the church, Jesus loves you like a man loves his own body. Jesus loves you because you, church, are his body. We looked at this last week. It said that Christ loves you because you are the body of of his royal person. And so do you, do you realize what he's saying here? The, the crazy theological ramification of what he's saying here. He's saying because you are his body, Jesus Christ nourishes you as he would nourish himself. He nourishes you the way he would take care of himself. Jesus treats you as he would treat himself. Now, how does he do it? How does Jesus nourish and feed you? There's just, just a, a passing phrase here. Verse 26 says, He makes us holy and he makes us washed by the word. 
Verse 26. Now the word can speak of, of scripture. Jesus does use scripture to feed you. And so you should receive the meal he serves you. You should, you should read the word. You should listen to the word on, on whatever devices you use. And, and you should sit under the preaching of his word. But the word can also speak not just of the, the scriptures in general, but it can also speak specifically of the gospel. And so what he's, he's saying there also for you, church, is this. You need to dig into the gospel. You need to keep bringing the gospel to bear on all the things that come up in your life. You need to bring the gospel to bear on your dark discouragements. You need to bring the gospel to bear on the things that you fear and the things that you're worried about. You need to bring the gospel to bear on your own struggle with your own sin. And maybe you've come to what feels like this huge rock blocking the road and you can't go forward because this huge boulder is sitting there in front of you. In your challenge, whatever the challenge is, whatever that rock is, there's always going to be some critical point with that, that rock, that massive stone blocking the way forward. There will always be some critical point where either the incarnation of Christ, the life of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, or his ascension, or his return, or his substitutionary atonement. Some, some place, some critical point where it, that aspect of the gospel will crack open the boulder that's blocking the way. Now the final thing that we see is this. Christ joined us. Verses 30 through 32. Christ joined us. Verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, he says. And so in marriage, this is what is to happen. A man must leave his parents. He must leave his father and mother. He needs to become emotionally independent from mom and dad. He needs to become financially independent from mom and dad. They can't, mom and dad cannot have their fingers in the marriage. They cannot be giving orders about the finances. And they need to keep their directions and their opinions out of the marriage. This says the man leaves his father and mother. And the man joins his wife. And they must become one flesh, not only physically, but at every level. Personally, they've got to become one. Financially, they've got to become one. Emotionally, they've got to become one. They, they now must merge in this union, merge their lives together, so that increasingly, they've got shared goals, and they've, they've got shared care for each other. She is his body. He is the head to which she is connected. Now, at this point, what Paul is saying is stunning, and it would be heretical, except the Bible spells it out very clearly here. Paul says, I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And what he's saying is, marriage, which was created so long ago at the beginning between a man and a woman, he's saying marriage was a pre-picture a predictive picture of Christ and his church. And that's the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus left his father in heaven and joined himself in the flesh with his people. Why? Because he loves us. With the love of this supreme husband for his lovely, lovely bride. Because he loves her 
with all of her spots and blemishes, and he will cleanse her. And if you get this, if, you, if this sinks down and takes hold in your heart and in your mind, it has everything, everything to say about self-loathing. And sometimes you, you, you get to these points where you, you feel so, so disgusted with yourself. Or, or people, you, ha- you have to deal with people who, whom you disgust. They call you disgusting. But you've got to get this. You've got to be convinced of this. If you're a believer, you don't disgust Jesus. He took on himself our flesh, our likeness. He was made into the likeness of our sinful flesh in order to begin a union with us that will never end. To begin a union that will make you blazingly bright in his eyes and in everyone's eyes. And so that means for a million years and for millions more to come, you will still light up the room when you enter. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we confess that we are not our own. You bought us at a great price and that price is just yet another demonstration of the greatness of your love towards us. Lord, we pray that you would convince us of this love and that we would receive it and that it would, it would lift us up, it would fill us, and it would encourage us and carry us. And we pray for those who may not know this love, may not be convinced of it, may not be willing to receive it. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit, your light would shine, your love would flow and overflow in us and among us today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.